Before I read our second lesson, I want to express my appreciation to the members of the congregation who have been so thoughtful and prayerful for Nathan and for me while we've been on this trip. I also want to express my appreciation to the session and to the Board of Deacons for their work and support, and especially to David Parks for preaching on one of the Sundays that I was away, and to express my apologies that I could not be here for the graduation service. I had clearly forgotten that May the 10th was when uh, uh, Sam was to graduate from medical school. And so when we came back after going around the world, and I don't mean around the world in 80 days, I mean around the world in 18 days. And some of me is still out there somewhere. <laughs> I, I have, I'm uh, still feeling the effects of the jet lag to uh, some degree. You know, it's interesting. I. Uh, Dr. Welton brought this book by the house, uh, Our China Investment, and it tells about people who go out toward the Far East. This was written by Frank Price in 1927, and now he's telling you how fast you can get to China now. He says, today a quick trip requires only five days from the eastern coast to Seattle, and then 14 days from Seattle to Yokohama. <laughs> I went from Asheville to Atlanta to Los Angeles, and then from Los Angeles to Tokyo in 12 hours, uh, nonstop. And then uh, the next morning on over to Seoul. And then uh, after we had completed the mission in Seoul, which I'll talk about in a few moments, uh, we went to Hong Kong where I had toyed with the idea of trying to visit into China but gave up on it. Uh, we got to Hong Kong and one of our friends who works for Dr. Billy Graham out there and whom I've known for, oh, I guess 20 years, looked at my airline ticket, and I told him that we had a son in Cambridge and that I wish we could come back through Europe and see him. And he said, look, uh, this airline ticket costs you more in the United States than a trip to, to the United States costs if you go back by Air India from out here. So keep these tickets and cash them in when you get home and get two more tickets here, and you can go back for $250 less and go through Europe. So we went with all of South India. Uh, on Air India, uh, from, uh, uh, from Hong Kong to Bangkok to, uh, New Delhi to Kuwait, uh, to London, and Frank picked up the bodies at London and, <laughs> and delivered us to his room at Cambridge, which was cold, uh, and, uh, I thought I was back on the mission field there. And then, uh, we stayed there for several days with him and then came on back uh, to New York, and we're five hours late getting into New York, and then when we got to Atlanta, Chuck Wright, who is on the board of trustees of our college, and a very dear friend, saw me on that moving sidewalk, and he and his wife rescued us about midnight and took us home and put us to bed. And uh, then uh, we got up the next morning, which was Friday, and came uh, to Montreat, but then had to get up at four to go to Duke for the graduation service. So it all seems like a dream. And uh, so if the sermon seems a little less coherent than even usual, you'll know why. I'll wake up somewhere during the sermon. Uh, <laughs> let me read you a couple passages of Scripture that I think uh, exemplify the best in mission work and also give us a mandate for uh, missions. 
the first is taken from Matthew chapter 9. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, but pay attention to the verb. Remember this, that love, Christian love, is a verb. It means doing something. And Jesus was going, going about all the cities. We've been through some of the big cities of the world. Los Angeles, Tokyo, Seoul, with 8 million people, Hong Kong, crowded, New Delhi, uh, London. Jesus went through the cities and also to the villages, where our missionaries were working in villages, small places. And what did he do? Here are your verbs. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed. The word here, distressed, in Greek has to do with the uh, close fleecing of a sheep and the nicks that might come from shearing a sheep. They were harassed because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, and the metaphor changes from sheep and shepherd to a harvest in a field, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, how do you remedy that? Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. The workers are few because the prayers are few. And then the familiar words from the end of Matthew's gospel, and I remember rushing out of here on Easter Sunday morning preaching from Matthew 28, and if you start at verse 16, the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to a mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I'm glad Matthew put that in because it shows this is not a propaganda document. It's really truthful. Uh, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. It was so much to believe. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Uh, we're commanded to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the consummation of the age. Amen. May God bless to our minds and hearts a proper understanding of this his word and our response to it. The passage which Larry read in your hearing just a few moments ago was a passage from the Old Testament that tells us how God had predicted a very personal work which would come amongst his people. How those who were scattered on in the dark and cloudy days 
Those who had been taken advantage of and those who were distressed would be sought out by a loving, caring shepherd. That shepherd has come. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, who is so well described in that role in John chapter 10, and whose role is so tremendously portrayed in all of the four records of the gospel. Also, in the four records of the gospel, each of them give us some type of great commission. It seems to permeate everything that happens. The first part that I read to you was that which tells us that Jesus went to the cities and the villages, both the small and the large, that he went teaching. And when I think of teachers, I have to think automatically of John and Virginia Somerville of Virginia, who is teaching in the Korean Christian Academy and uh, seeking to help as best she can help there in the teaching of missionary children, and of John, who is a learned and profound scholar, uh, who has gained the respect of many of the students in the great university where he worked, and how his heart breaks because of the political turmoil and the upheaval and unrest that exists on many student campuses there in Korea today. They need our prayers for wisdom and for grace and for understanding. Uh, John and Nathan and I walked uh, about three miles one Sunday to a little country church, and it was easy to recognize some of the hymns that were being sung, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds and What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Uh, when the preacher preached, I'll have to admit I couldn't understand everything that he said. I could recognize the hymn tunes. And on the way back, when we were walking back to John and Virginia's, John told me about the sermon. It was a very good sermon. Uh, we all sat on the floor, and it was crowded to the walls. And I couldn't help but think, as I looked at this little church packed full of people, and I thought of that great Presbyterian church that we had passed by in Seoul that has 18,000 members. And we think Highland Park has got a big church. Uh, 18,000. And then when you stop to think that in 1984 we'll celebrate a hundred years of work in Korea, and already the Korean Presbyterians are as big as our denomination here. They've grown tremendously, and they have a great evangelistic zeal. Uh, they have been persecuted sorely, and they've been through much trouble, but their love for Jesus is great, and we got to see it firsthand, and that was a, a thrill that we will not soon forget. John especially wanted us to pray for the students in Korea, and Virginia wanted us to pray for our missionaries' children. I do not think that we often uh, pray enough for the sons and daughters of our missionaries. It's uh, no light sacrifice to be separated from your family for a long periods of time, and I hope that you will remember them in prayer. Jesus came teaching. What did he teach? He taught the Word of God. He taught them how God's point of view stood toward other people, toward sinners, toward their own responsibilities to share. And he taught them from village and city, in synagogue and on the hillside. He was teaching them the Word of God. John seeks to teach the Word of God working in the university there in helping students and intellectuals come to a knowledge of Christ. Then R.K. and Toddy Robinson, in their small little house, 
They had us, they were there to meet us when we got off the plane in Seoul. They were so happy to see us, and we were sleepy and very happy to see them. Then when we started across the countryside, you could see all of those years of experience simply exuding from R.K., who is always described as a missionary's missionary, an evangelistic missionary, whose responsibility is like that second thing which Jesus did, proclaiming. And the word proclaiming there really means heralding. Back before they had the advent of radio or television or the swift communications that we have now, when the king had a message to send to his subject, he would send a herald who would go into the town square and blow a trumpet, and the people would assemble, and he would deliver the message from the king. And the picture here is of the Lord Jesus Christ coming as a herald from God Almighty, his Father, to a world that is in rebellion against him, bringing a message of peace, saying that we can be reconciled to God through him, bringing good news to us. And this is what R.K. and Toddy Robinson are engaged in. And R.K. has taken the four spiritual laws of Campus Crusades and Jim Kennedy's evangelism explosion technique down at Fort Lauderdale. And he has taken it to Korean Christians. And they really carry out that commandment of Jesus at the ending of the Gospel of Matthew, well, where, where Jesus commands us while we are going. It's a present participle. While you are going, not just John and Virginia and R.K. and Toddy and Joe and Dot, but while you are going to the barber shop and the beauty shop in Black Mountain in Asheville, while you're going around the people who work on the campuses here, while you are going... We are to be making disciples. We have a great many statistics about membership, but we need to, to be concentrating more on making disciples. And this is what impressed us most about the work that R.K. Robinson is doing. He is seeking to dis teach discipleship. A disciple is a, a learner. He is a learner who is committed like an apprentice who learns a trade. And Jesus gave a great promise concerning that learning. He said, Lo, I will be with you always. And it means that we must teach people one-on-one. -on -one. In 1948, I learned to fly an airplane. I could not have walked out and gotten into the airplane and taken off and successfully landed it, even though I'd read books about it. I had to get into the airplane with an instructor who taught me and taught me and taught me and then held his breath and prayed for me when I took off for the solo flight. Well, that's the way it is. We, we teach others, and R.K. has taught this procedure there in Korea with great effectiveness and with marvelous results. And in the churches where he labors and goes, you can see that they are interested in discipling in depth not just simply walking a card, walking an aisle, signing a card, raising a hand. All of that may be good, but that's just the beginning. Then there has to be some discipling and teaching. And that learning and apprenticeship comes over a period of time. And that activity Jesus commands us to do. Uh, I was also seeing this same work carried out by Joe and Dot Hopper. 
I was interested in reading Joe's report because this is the annual mission meeting and he was on furlough, you remember, last summer here. And uh, Joe was on furlough last year for the first time for 12 full months in, in the last 15 years. And it was the first time he and Dot had their children up to the point that they could travel together. And if anyone knows Joe Hopper, you know that Joe is the absolute epitome. He is the quintessence. He is the living end of all things accurate in matters of statistics and logical progression of thought. Joe told uh, uh, in his report that when he came home, he spoke 215 times, traveled 15,000 miles, was in 149 churches or groups, were 87 nights on the road, and consumed 50 night family night suppers. <laughs> it's interesting to go to the other side and hear how they think about us. Uh, uh, but to see Joe and Dot at work, Joe was born, of course, there in Korea, and Dot was born out in Africa. It's amazing to me how many missionaries' children later go back into missionary service. And uh, so Joe and Dot are highly respected by the Koreans. They go out into the places where other people have great difficulty in going and can just move smoothly in and out amongst them and uh, have nothing but the greatest uh, respect. Jesus also came healing. And when I think of healing, I do not think that, uh, and I want to say this, and I hope it doesn't sound corny, but I'm very thankful that I had the privilege of Nathan going with me on this trip, not only because he's good and strong and he could carry all five pieces of baggage and, and that helped greatly, uh, but also because he got to go through some hospitals and to see firsthand with Dr. David Seal in the Jesus Hospital, supported by the Jesus Presbyterian Church. How do you like that name? The Jesus Presbyterian Church supporting the Jesus Hospital. And in that church, this sensitive, brainy fellow of the American College of Surgeons, brilliantly trained surgeon, David Seal. He could be making two or $300,000 a year here in the United States with his enormous abilities and skills as a surgeon. But he is there because of the compassion that Jesus Christ has put into his heart for those who are sick. I highly recommend his little book, Does My Father Know I'm Hurt? For it shows the sensitivity which Dr. David Steele works in the Jesus Hospital. You'll be interested in knowing that just two years before Dr. Nelson Bell died, he wrote the preface to this book. And he said, this remarkable book tells the story of individuals whose lives were blighted by cancer and of the loving ministry of a Christian physician who combines the highest degree of modern professional skill on their behalf. It's told in beautiful prose. Dr. David Seal takes the reader along with him into a physician-patient relationship that sees the pathetic need for compassion and skillful treatment fulfilled by more than physical restoration, filled by the presence and the power of the real love of Christ. And when you think of the real love of Christ in that healing way, you cannot help but think about that remarkable Huckleberry Finn look in Stan Topple's face. 
I had the privilege of going to Columbia Theological Seminary at the same time that Stan Topol was a medical student over at Emory University uh, Medical School. Uh, Stan's father was a wealthy um, furniture dealer in Atlanta, Georgia. And Stan could have also stayed in this country with a very lucrative practice. He went out to Korea to be uh, a restorative surgeon. He's an orthopedic surgeon. And to see this man, and to see the love that he has, when a mother comes into his office and he's already worked to death, and there is strapped to her back a little pink-shaped baby, and then the baby is whining and crying because he's full of pain and sick, and when the nurse removes the baby, everyone in the room winces because the little baby has been horribly burned in his arms are webbed to his chest and his fingers are all webbed together with a matrix of scar tissue. And when he looks at Stan Topple in his white uniform, he thinks this is just another one of those tormentors who will hurt me. But a week later, that little boy, through the skill of that incredibly gifted surgeon, has his arms freed and his hands so that they'll be able to move. And he'll be healed, and he'll walk about like little two-year-old boys ought to walk about, and he'll play, and he'll grow up, knowing the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ through one of his gifted and talented servants who works for him there in Korea. Or the big burly truck driver who came into Stan's office, Mr. Kim, a common name, Stands trying to catch a bus and going out of the door, but he looks and stares for a moment at a lesion, an abrasion on the skin, and he looks at it very suspiciously. Tells the nurse to take a smear. The bacillus is looked at, and later the truck driver is called in. He's told that he has leprosy. He can't believe it. He says, I still have the use of my hands. There's no leprosy. I've never even been near a leper. Stan says, you have leprosy. He tells him the familiar story, but he also tells him that there is much that can be done, that he does not have to worry about his nose being caved in and his ears and falling off or his fingers rotting away, that now he can be helped because they've caught it in its earliest stages. And this man who is not afraid to touch the leper and who carries out the commandments of the love of Jesus there works hard in that place. Dr. David Seal has a dream of establishing a Christian medical school. I love his goals. He wants it to be true to the God who is behind all faith and science, to the value of the individual, to the witnessing of the gospel of Christ's love, and to the manifesting of the power of prayer. And so he prays with his people. He is sensitive. So Stan Topple tells us that our Savior bore our sins and carried our griefs, our distresses, and our sorrows. And so he, as a loving, sensitive doctor, along with his wife, seeks to show that same love for Jesus too. Then after we had visited the mission stations that we were visiting, it came out 
the time for me to stand up in front of all these missionaries, maybe half as many as are in this room, in a U.S. military chaplain's retreat center in Seoul. Missionaries from a number of denominations where I was to give some Bible lessons. They did an interesting thing. After the sermon, they put some chairs, and then they would discuss the passage that we had read. And I noted something wonderful. They discussed everything from a positive, constructive, believing viewpoint. It was always looking for something to build you up in the faith and to encourage one another in the gospel and to sharpen each other, to believe more and to serve more faithfully and to love more diligently. I can never forget a story that I read during World War II of Winston Churchill, how that on one occasion he had visited one of the great battlefields, maybe it was El Alamein. He had flown in there against all of his advisors, and the troops, of course, had been through a terrible beating, and Churchill was to review them. And these men who had been in combat day after day after day and night after night of horror and bloodshed saw their prime minister, the great Winston Churchill himself, as he stood there looking at them. And he stood in front of a private soldier who was trembling like a leaf that the prime minister was in front of him. And Churchill looked at him and said, Do you feel awkward in my presence? And the soldier shook his head that he did. And Churchill had huge tears fall down his face and off his cheeks and said, then perhaps you know how I feel in your presence. This is the way I felt in the presence of these people who sing their hymns for Jesus, who make their prayers for him, and who spend their lives in serving him so faithfully. All the missionary reports that are given could never possibly convey to you what actually exists when you see it there. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church. He will build it, and in that wonderful passage that we read a moment ago, all authority is given unto me. The word there is exousia in Greek. It, it's the authority, uh, not like dynamite, dunamis, but it's authority that comes, the crazy, mad, preposterous act of violence when the man shot uh, Pope John Paul II the other day. He had power in a big nine-millimeter instrument of death that he could shoot and kill someone with and harm a great a man of God and of peace, but he had no authority one of the cardinals who spoke, spoke of the madness of the evil that is at, at loose in the world. And it does not take one long in watching the mission fields to see that madness and that evil that's there. You remember Jesus in this book of Matthew that we've been reading these two lessons from, was the man who was born to be king. And when he was born, the Gentiles, you remember the wise men came saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And do you remember when he was dead upon the cross and said it is completed, his work is finished? 
The superscription over him had been written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the Jews came to Pilate and wanted to change the wording on that placard. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. King Jesus came, and in Matthew you see him pointed out by John the Baptist as the king. You see the Holy Spirit descend upon him, and he is pointed out by the voice of God as king. Even Satan must acknowledge his kingship when he tempts him in the wilderness. And then those of you who have studied with us through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, have seen the manifesto of the king, how the king's program is to be initiated and brought into effect. You see him in his power there. Then if you study Matthew chapters 11 through 13, you'll see rebellion begin against the king. And there is rebellion against him today. The communists in China do not want his gospel preached. And the hedonist and the materialist in America do not want his gospel preached. Because it cuts through selfishness and greed. And it does mean sharing. Chapters 14 through 20, the king retires and teaches. Chapters 21 through 27, you see him come into Jerusalem and they shout at him that, Hosanna, God save us. This is the king. But then they reject him. And by the end of the week, they say, we have no king but Caesar. But then on that Easter morning, on that day that I left, we saw Matthew 28 in its first part, the resurrection of the king. And then we see that all, and that's a big word. All authority has been given to him. And that's what makes Christianity a missionary faith. We go as God sent his son into the world to go, to bear a testimony to Jesus wherever we can. We do not coerce people, but we bear a witness and a testimony, and we must bear that witness and that testimony. When the plane that we were flying on landed in New Delhi, on the way back. I noticed that the lady that I was seated by, and we were in the economy section, but near one of the doors where there was more leg room, uh, the Indian airline people were very thoughtful because I have had a stroke and my right leg gets stiff after a while. And they gave me a, a good place to stretch my leg. And I noticed that the lady I was sitting by was a very distinguished looking person. And when she was brought on the airplane, the captain of the airliner uh, came back on this big jumbo jet and he bowed in her presence and uh, did reverence to her and spoke to her very uh, tenderly. And then he turned to me and said, you're seated by the former ambassador from India to the United States, Great Britain, and Russia. She was Prime Minister Nehru's sister. And we fell into a conversation. I talked to her about Sadhu Sundar Singh, one of those remarkable Christians who came out of India. 
who came to the West and was so disillusioned with our materialism here and was such a lover and liver out of the life of Jesus Christ that he walked in his saffron robe with his Urdu New Testament into the snowy wastes of the Himalayan mountains where he sought to witness amidst much persecution in Tibet and died. And she had great respect for Sadhu Sundar Singh and great respect for Mother Teresa for her work in Calcutta. And we had an opportunity to exchange a pleasant conversation and, and to exchange addresses, uh, addresses so that we might correspond with one another. A lady 80 years of age, but sensitive to those in the Christian faith who live it and who live it out in daily life. Now then, Jesus tells us, I am with you always. That makes all the difference in the world. Lo, I am with you always, even not to the end of the world, but to the completion of the program. I am with you to the consummation of the age until my Father's purposes are carried out. I am with you. But we are to bear that testimony. And to bear that testimony, it takes, it takes conviction. And it takes courage. And it takes compassion. There is a story that I wish to close on. When we got to Cambridge, we were very happy. Frank was very happy to meet us at the airport and get us there where we could sleep and then walk around and see Cambridge University. And I noticed on a movie marquee that a film was being shown called Chariots of Fire. And I saw the words beneath the film titled The Story of Eric Little the Olympic gold winner from Scotland, and the story of Harold Abramson, an Olympic gold winner from Cambridge. And I knew about Eric Little because I'd had the privilege of studying in Edinburgh, and anyone who's been to Edinburgh University knows about Eric Little. And so there, I said to Frank, this is a good film, and we ought to go and see it. He said, well, I haven't seen a a film since I've been here. And I said, well, you're studying too hard and you're going to go see one now. So we'll get some fish and chips and go and see the film. And we did. And it was a tremendous film. But the story of Eric Little is so great because it fulfills to the letter the title of what I believe a missionary has to have in the conviction of who Jesus Christ is. Eric Little, by the way, is was the son of Presbyterian missionaries out to China. They sent him back to the University of Edinburgh for his education. He went to a place where they ran dogs on a cinder track and started running, practicing sprinting. And one of the coaches saw him running and said that his style was so horrible he would never make a runner. But the coach had to eat his words because when the amateur championship time came around at Edinburgh University in the InterVarsity play, Eric Little won every single thing they had. 
They put him on their football team, of course. All the football coaches are looking for fast people. And then he went with the Scottish team to France, where he was one of the heroes that played in that, in what they call rugby. And then uh, he began his remarkable career of running the 100 and the 220 yard. Back then, he ran the 100-yard dash in 9-7. And that was back in the early 1920s. 1921, 1922, and 1923, he won contests in Scotland uh, versus England and Ireland. And in that triangular contest between England, Scotland, and Ireland, a very incredible thing happened. When the gun was fired in the 400-meter race, Eric Little at the bend was knocked off over into the grass by the runner from England, whose name was Gillis. He hit the turf and got up to see everyone 20 yards in front of him, and yet with a burst of absolute incredible and unexplainable and impossible vitality, he came off the ground, overtook the runners, broke the tape at the finish line and won the race in what the people who watched it called the greatest single uh, demonstration of athletic prowess they'd ever seen, and then he collapsed when he went across the tape. Well, naturally, when the Olympics were to be held in 1924 in Paris, everyone wanted to see Eric Little run. And so he went to Paris, France, to compete in behalf of his country in the Olympics. And this is all shown in the film. Mind you, here is a man who on Sundays is witnessing for Christ in what we would call a fellowship of Christian athletes, and talking in churches to groups, but who is a very modest and humble man. So modest that he took a trial. They didn't start from starting blocks like we do, but they, the track stars would dig a little place with a trial, a little place for their foot in the cinder track. And he had a trial, and he'd dig out a place for himself and then hand the trial to the other people and then shake hands with each one of them. And then he got down on his marks, and boy, when they fired the gun, he was off. Well, he won everything. And the great athlete from Cambridge, who was the son of very rich people and had the very best of trainers, competed fiercely to beat Eric Little, but he couldn't do it. Then when they got to Paris, an interesting thing took place. The heats for the 100 meter were to be held on Sunday. And Eric Little announced that he would not compete on Sunday. He was invited to one of the big hotels where the delegation from the British Empire implored him for the sake of the flag in his country to please compete in the heats on Sunday so that he could run the 100 meters and help them to win the gold medal. And Eric Little said no. I remember in the scene in the film, the butler comes in and offers him a glass of sherry. And one of the disgusted officials said, oh, get out of here. He doesn't smoke or drink either. <laughs> and uh, then the, the man who was later to be the king of England said to Eric Little, won't you realize that sometimes you have to sacrifice on behalf of your country? And then one of the pompous uh, people from Cambridge stood up and said, don't you know that your king comes before God? And Eric Little said, God made kings, and my decision is irrevocable. Well, the next day there was a furor in the press about this fanaticism. 
And then the crafty Scots delegation got together and they said, look, our man won't run on the Christian Sabbath, but he'll run on Thursday in the 400 meters. Why can't we get our 400 meter man to run on, on, on his place and let him run on, on Thursday? Eric Little wouldn't enter the stadium on Sunday, but on Thursday he was there. Well, the coaches passed the word up and down the line not to worry about Eric Little, that he would fold up after a couple of, after a couple of the fast uh, laps in the race. Eric Little shook hands with each of the people. And then there was a man by the name of Schultz in the film who sent a scrap of paper to him, just a little scrap of paper. And Eric Little, who was getting down on his marks to run, read a handwritten note. And do you know what it said? It was a pair, it was just a quotation from the Old Testament book of Samuel. The Lord says, I will honor him who honors me. And Eric Little folded that in his hand. And when the gun was fired, Eric Little came out of the pits so fast that they couldn't believe it. He kept on going so fast that they couldn't believe it. And when they thought that he would fold at the end, he was so far in front of the rest of them that it was ridiculous. There was pandemonium in the 60,000 people in the stands uh, standing and cheering with all of their hearts for this huge champion who saw his flag run up and the national anthem of his country played and who had stuck to his convictions with not a bit of Phariseeism about him but a loving Christian manner. He came back to Edinburgh where my old professor, Dr. James S. Stewart, said that he was one of the thousands who went down to the Waverly Station to see Eric Little get on a train at the Waverly Station to take the train all the way across the Trans-Siberian Railway to China, where he would spend his life as a missionary. He said that the Waverly Station was filled with students, and they sang the hymn that we'll close with this morning, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. And Stuart said, I'll never forget that scene as long as I live, but that's not the end. Eric Little went to China in 1928. He went over to, to Japan where they were having some racing contests that were there, some foot races, and he competed to the delight of the Japanese in a huge stadium he won the 400 meter there, and he had to catch a ship to go back to China. And this is a true story. He came through, broke the finish tape, and all the crowd stood up yelling, and he ran straight out under the thing, under the stadium, right out to a waiting taxi that took off for the dock. And then when he got to the dock, the gangplank had been lift, lifted up, and he jumped onto the ship that was to take him back to China. He was like Ed Curry. And... <laughs> And then uh, that man, in 1942, the Japanese overran the place where Eric Little labored for Christ in China. And he was put into a concentration camp. And the Japanese worked them like bees. And this man who spared his food to help feed others who were sick and who nursed them and who lifted the big rocks and did the hard work, died in 1945 in a Japanese prison camp. That's something of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, to follow him 
with conviction and to follow him with courage and to follow him with compassion. If you've never yet allowed the message of the king to sink into your heart, think about it today. Have you really yielded your life to him? And are you available to go wherever he wants you to go? And while you're going here, won't you obey him in witnessing for him? And have you disobeyed his commandment to pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers in his fields? Practically every missionary I talked to, when I asked them, what can we do for you back home, said, pray for us. So we need to pray. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father, we as a congregation seek your forgiveness wherein we have failed to pray or to think or to give or to go or to witness as we should have and ask that the Holy Spirit will prompt in us a deeper dedication. Help us to see how swiftly life fades away and that what we've been taught and preached about and read in your word is eternally true. And the moment this heart stops beating and we're in your presence, there's no more time that we'll have then to witness or to work or to pray. So help us to do our work now for your glory. Bless these dear ones that we've spoken about today and all the others that we didn't have time to talk about and those who are already promoted to higher service and who watch from the ramparts of heaven.